Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the S&T Show. I am one of your hosts. My name is Dustin Pym. Beside me is... Julian Ho. Today we have an extra special guest mm-hmm. on the show. This is the founder of Sweat & Tonic. He's also the chairman of Go Easy, an overall huge business guy, entrepreneur, uh, inspirational person. Uh, we're sitting here with David Ingram today. Hi, David. Thanks hey, for being on the morning, show. Good morning, guys. Welcome. Well, I wanted to just jump right into it, and I guess we can just ask the question, Sweat and Tonic, how did you conceive of that idea? Oh, uh, it goes back goes back a number of years. Uh, it goes back probably over three, four years. And uh, the idea was just uh, from traveling around different locations to get my sweat fix. I really enjoyed getting a sweat fix from spinning. I really enjoyed a sweat fix from yoga. Uh, and then I got into a bit of hit uh, performance too. So all of those things uh, were uh, pieces of leisure and interest that I had. Uh, but I couldn't find one place that could solve for all three. And therefore, uh, it led me down a path of trying to see, could I solve for this? And uh, would I have the time? Would I have the effort and the ability to do that? So I gave myself that challenge uh, two or three years ago. Wow. Well, it's a multi-boutique studio that houses all three of not only David's favorite movement disciplines, but everyone's favorite movement disciplines. Do you see this as a trend in, uh, first of all, in the wellness and fitness industry, seeing these multiple boutiques coming together on, under one roof? And then second part to that, do you see that in other industries as well? Yeah, so I think to the first part of your question, uh, I had always been a fan of personal training. So I found that that uh, much more personal activity to make sure the right trainer for my right uh, motivations and things I was trying to achieve was the best use of my time. But over years and years of doing that, I found it became ever so more expensive to do. It became somewhat limited to the same individual relationship and uh, the different different things that happen in that relationship over time. Uh, but I, I lost, what I really lost more than anything else uh, was this feeling of camaraderie and competitiveness that I used to get from playing team sports. Right. So when I was at school and even after school playing for uh, teams back in England, I played rugby until I was 27, 28. Wait, I could still, wait you're from England? I'm, you're from I, England? I, how could you tell? I, that's crazy. It's normally Australia or I'm South Africa. It's well. New Zealand. <laughs> Um, But rugby was my game and soccer was another game that I really enjoyed. So those team sports give you an element of uh, camaraderie with your fellow uh, tribe that's going to battle to try to win a game. The competitiveness to just want to train, be really good at what you do and try and win. I mean, the win almost becomes everything in the team sport environment. And when you remove that, there's an element of always missing that on the field action, that on the field activity. So in a way, I found that class activity substitutes some of that feeling for me. And in every class I go to, it doesn't matter whether it's yoga, hit, or spin, I can moderate the level I want to get to. So irrespective of the instructor, irrespective of the actual class, it is always still dependent and accountable to me mm-hmm. as to how far I push it. Right. So yoga is a great example. You start with yoga with the very basics, just trying to get your body into new positions. But as you work your way through the different disciplines, 
then you might get an interest in inversion practice. And then you get to see a class like Sheldon's class mm -hmm. and realize you're still at the beginning of the curve. You're just a novice. You and, have no idea and, what you're doing when you, you get there. You will never get your body into the shapes and types of things he can do, but it doesn't stop you from having that natural competitive gene to say, you can keep climbing. And mm -hmm. you never get to the peak. You never get to look over the top of the mountain, but you really enjoy the climb and that journey to keep trying to get to there. And in every class, I find you get the benefits of being there with a different tribe that's mm. all trying to do great things, big things, having lots of fun because it's an active studio, great music, so mm. it just keeps you fresh and young. Um, and then this final bit that I always missed when I stopped doing team sports, which was this competitiveness to challenge myself to do better, harder than I did in my last class. And that's what I find I can get from all of the three studios. Mm -hmm. So the the trend is not necessarily the main essence, it's the camaraderie connection and the culture of that team essence yeah. that you were talking about. Now, do you find that that's something transferable to other industries too, that like leaders in this health and wellness space can push into music, fashion, food? Yeah, so I mean, definitely back to the trend question. I think there is, uh, there's lots of research and lots of data points that you'll see that class-based studios uh, are growing at a much faster pace than, say, personal training. Mm -hmm. And part of that is just millennial-driven. Millennials liked to have social collisions. Millennials like to be able to have the flexibility and the freedom to go with their tribe to different classes and try different things together. It's a collective thing that they want to do with their friends and share the success and the change with themselves. So I think millennials have led that change and it's more of a bias towards female versus male, um, but you can clearly see the emergence when you see great successful single studio experts like SoulCycle, Barry's, you can see what a great job they've done at building that presence uh, for the class-based training. Now there's an opportunity to take all of those great classes into one hub and create the wellness hub around it. And probably the piece that I didn't mention, which was a big part of why Sweat and Tonic, I think connects for most people, is that beyond the classes, is this, this, this ability to have these social collisions after class, before class, that you generally can't get when you go to a single space studio. There isn't the space for it. There isn't the room to just sit down and speak and meet with your fellow tribe. Um, and there just isn't the environment to say, enjoy a cocktail, enjoy a fresh juice, enjoy a lunch or a dinner, and just have that time to connect. So all of those pieces pull it together to give you a place, a hub, that your community can sit and enjoy and spend time with. And I, and I can just remember so many classes I've been to, I saw the same faces week in and week out on the same schedule. I didn't know their names mm. because everyone is very mechanical, they're functional. They get to the class on time, they leave the class, there is no space to encourage the collision. So you just wanna put your boots on and leave and that's it until you see them next week yeah. this is a place where actually now you can make new friendships now you can share your story now you can encourage and motivate each other so that next week when you're back in class you're pushing yourself a little bit harder and you're giving yourself both a bit of a challenge to get to new heights it kind of reminds me of um you know like the old country club idea you know like uh that old money idea where you pay this premium to have access to you know, like a cricket club or a yacht club or whatever, mm. 
and you know people go play squash and after squash then they sit around and have a beer you know but this is taking away all of the other gates around that kind of culture and just like if you want to be a part of this come just come be here you know we're open so so my closest connection to that was playing rugby yeah of course rugby was one of those games where on the field uh, your adrenaline gets so high that the impact you, you don't feel it. Yeah, so your people, off and you don't even know people your would go to war. Yeah. And if you ever see uh, the All Blacks play, you'll know what war looks like at the highest level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a physical war. It's not like a mental war. It's yeah. a physical war where you've prepared your body to go to battle to try to win at all cost. And within the confines of that space, people get bruised, people get damaged, people pick up injuries. People are absolutely vicious during that 90 minutes, 75 minutes yeah, of the yeah. game. But guess what happens afterwards? They get off the pitch, they get showered, they sit together, and then it's pints of Guinness, mm. some bangers and mash, and telling some stories, and everyone absolutely loves the moment to share the story of what happened on the yeah. battle place at that time. So that's the nearest I can get to from my history. Yeah, yeah. But in today's world, that's about doing all other kinds of discussions and collaborations. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I think that open swing space can give them, is the opportunity to share that part of their life uh, but also hopefully make new connections that then creates new stories yeah, yeah. and new new ventures for them. So you, you said bangers and mashed. Why didn't you call it bangers and mashed? Bangers and mashed? Why, did you call it, why sweat and tonic, David? It didn't quite have the same connection as uh, sweat and tonic. And I, you'd sweat probably and tonic. get a different clientele than bangers yeah, and mashed, let's be honest. I don't think that people coming in here would be coming in for sweat. They'd be, be coming in all kinds of things. And they've got the firkin and the quail for that type of yes. activity. Mm. So for us... Uh, more likely to be gin and tonics, which is how we got to the name in the first place. Explain uh, that. So uh, my favorite drink, particularly when I go home to England in the summer, is to just have a nice gin and tonic. I yeah. always find out a refreshing drink. Yes. And uh, and I, I I enjoy it. Julian, do you drink those? I do. Good. Botanical so uh, gin. <laughs> okay. Sweat and tonic came because uh, I wanted the studio all to be about the sweat. So. I, I just felt sweat was a great way. It was an umbrella to say whether you're coming here to uh, lose weight, you want to burn some calories, maybe it's because you want to get a natural high from your endorphins and everything else and get those toxins out. But there's all kinds of great things happen when you get a good sweat. So sweat was a very obvious thing to do to bind the three studios. The next part was a bit more awkward because everyone in the marketing world would tell you a one name uh, title is the best way to go because it's more memorable. Reebok, Nike, that kind Lulu, of thing. Adidas, and and it and it does make a lot of sense. Even my old company, Go Easy, is is one name. Easy Financial is one name. Easy Home is one name. But for me, because we were going to be more than just a place to come and sweat, we were going to have this feature, this element of having space you could relax and hang out and meet with people, a place that you could connect and work if that's what you needed to do. You needed something more than just a sweat. And the tonic came because gin and tonic is my favorite drink. And then the tonic just felt like that would be the after class yeah. opportunity to relax and hang back. So sweat and tonic it is, despite everyone's best attempt to change my mind. <laughs> uh, I can't be changed once I've made my mind and, and that was it. So what was the potential other name for the business? Can you tell us like well, one or two? No, because everyone kept saying, just call it sweat. And I said, well, um, I don't know how you call it, just sweat. sweat. Welcome to sweat. Yeah, it didn't, didn't give me oh, yeah. that sense of inspiration. Um, I like the social there was There was one name I really liked uh, that was called Sweatshop. Mm. 
and I went to LA. There was a place in LA that is a ride studio right. that all they do is heated uh, spin. Mm. So you go in and there's no regular class. It's just a heated spin class. So they already trademarked the name, so the name's gone. I so see. we went, Sweat yeah, Tonic yeah. was the right name. Cool. Hmm. Well, I think you started uh, down the path of sharing your history and your past interests in terms of the rugby world. Maybe we can dive further into that because part of this podcast is going behind the curtains of what we present mm. ourselves. So my question is, tell us about the non-LinkedIn side of David Ingram. Things that you can't get online about you. Maybe tell us about who you are as father, as a sibling, mm-hmm. as a son. So um, it's, it's interesting that uh, most people assume because I'm from England and because I'm in a uh, fairly senior role or I've done senior things, that I must have had this uh, educated path and this uh, middle class journey to get to where I am. So. I think probably the most surprising people, surprising thing most people learn is that if actually you go back in time, uh, I actually came from a family that's a single parent mother family with yeah. two other siblings. So my life uh, was actually more of a struggle in my early stages because there wasn't the income to support uh, doing many things beyond the basics. Uh, I had a number of part-time jobs from the age of 12, 13. So like most kids in England, you do a paper round and deliver the papers nice. at six, seven in the morning. Did George bring up a paper round as yeah, well. He did. George, like he did. No, yeah. George had a paper round. There's, there's a thing like that, yeah. So yeah, so so paper round was the easiest one to do because you just need a you just need a bike in yeah. a bag and drop the the the, uh, the papers off. So that was my first one. Um, the second job was then to keep me busy during the summer holidays, the school holidays. So I worked at this place called the Lifeboat Inn, which was this really nice pub down by the water that served great salads and crab and lobster. And everyone from London in the summer used to come down to this little village called Selsey where I lived, and they would come to this pub. So uh, I got a job working in the summer, just basically cleaning the tables, cleaning up the cutlery, washing the dishes, and doing all the jobs that no one else really wants to do. From 10 in the morning till kind of four or five o'clock in the afternoon. So that gave me uh, time to fill for all the school holidays. Uh, and then I progressed to another third part time job, which was to then give me something to do when the summer was done. And I worked at a gas station. Now, in those days, gas stations uh, were still, you didn't have self pump, you had to have an attendant pump yeah, the gas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned very quickly that if I pumped the gas at the weekends, it was mostly uh, women drivers coming in who needed help, either with tires, checking the water, checking the oil. So I'd lift the bonnet, check the oil, check the water, do the tires, and learn very quickly I would get tips if I did these things. And more importantly, that the most frequent thing they needed was the oil topped up. So I did a deal with the owner that said, look, I know that the oil is potentially your best selling product and the highest margin. I already knew the cost on the different items. If you give me a commission on the oil, I bet you I can triple, quadruple the sales on your oil product every weekend. So from there on in, we agreed 50 pence, which is like 75 cents today for every canister of oil that I sold, which... When I did that, that, that made my money at the weekend way bigger than the salary. That, that hustle was built in. Well, the, the, the hustle then led me to doing uh, bets 
at school because math was my favorite subject and I could easily work the odds in terms of who could win lose on the games at the weekend. So in our soccer league in England, we have one of the best leagues in the Premier League today. Um, so every weekend teams would play and on a Saturday at three o'clock generally the game would play. I would just offset the bets. There were only one dollar debts between all the different uh, kids at school and it was a win-lose bet and a draw bet. And uh, every Friday they give me their one dollar each and on Monday I'd do the payout and then I'd be left with a small margin. So between all of those paths, I could finance my way through high school and support some of the family needs and the sibling needs. Uh, but then once I finished 16, at the age of 17, I went to work in my first job. And uh, I never went to college or university. I just went straight to work in uh, retail. Wow. That hustle. That is awesome. I, I feel like your life should be a Guy Ritchie movie. <laughs> uh, with with uh, flick knives and guns yeah, and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, stock we gotta, we got to make it a little bit more exciting, but still, yeah. like, I mean, Sweat the hustle there <laughs> is crazy. Right. You know, like, th that hustle is, is unbelievable. I'm super interested in that. Um, well, that's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing, David. Um, for all the entrepreneurs out there, could maybe you share the value of resilience and maybe grit? Like, obviously, at a young age, you were kind of carving out your own path and finding a way to make more for yourself. So you obviously have to have a thick skin. You have to have that grit and determination. Can you maybe talk about that? And yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a few traits um, that you learn over time that, that really help you and assist you and also traits you look for in other people. Right. So for example, for me, I look for people with what I call SPD, which is people that are smart, and smart doesn't need to be qualified by, uh, obviously, I'm a reference to this, but I don't qualify smart necessarily by academia. I, right. I can recognize it through just natural horsepower. Conversation. The ability to do things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also people that have got smarts uh, may not have had the richest background, so poor, uh, and then finally determined. So, so poor I, is actually one of them. I think I, when I look around to see evidence of successful people, some of the common traits that I've seen and some of the common traits I look for in hiring, recruiting my team in different roles in different companies is if they can show me their smarts, they can show me that maybe they have a poorer background, so it gives them a sense of humility, humbleness, right. uh, and then finally determination. Determination mm. is a really critical component to make these two things bind together. So um, when you do go through periods of challenge, and therefore resilience is required because no life is linear. No life or success happens from just going on a straight line. Yeah, it's not every, a to B, it's, Every mm -hmm. single life uh, curve has ups and downs. Some of them are peaks and valleys because they're much bigger traumatic events, uh, and some of them are just speed bumps, things that you should just ride and coast over. So I think everyone is gonna get tested and everyone is gonna have some trauma in their life um, then it's a case of how do they bounce back and right. how do they fight through it. You never ever test a manager by how good he is through success. You always test the individual, how they get through right. hardship, bad things, and then how, how does their personality come through that experience. So that poor background or that, that rougher Grittiness. background 
already shows that they have that built in their DNA. Right, right? like it's virtual. already there that they can fight out of yeah. adversity. Right. It's a bit like um, so. If you ever want, read the book Legends, uh, which is about the New Zealand uh, New Zealand story about the All Blacks, the yes, rugby team. I did read if it. If you ever read that book, there's a chapter in there that is called like cleaning out the shed. Yeah. And it's all about in their Sleeping language, the in their world. Yeah. To them, just because you play for the All Blacks, and the All Blacks are the most successful franchise sports team in the world, of every more sport. than any of other any sport, any sport and they're from a nation of three and a half million people. Yeah. There are more sheep in New Zealand than there are people. It's just three and a half million. Yet they're the winningest franchise of any sport. Like ever. over the Yankees, mm. over like you know the Lakers, anything you can think of, they're the most. Winners. They're the best, and despite all of that. To be graduated to play for the national team, it is still expected upon them to clean the changing rooms oh, after wow. a game. Yeah. So to keep that humbleness, that humility, mm. and that hunger, there's a principle of how you need to behave to be part of the All Blacks. And I think that is a critical separation to what you see in today's professional sports, where rightly so, in some sense, the best of the best are put on a pedestal but it doesn't mean to say they should change their values or their manners right. or their behavior to other people. Of course. And the All Blacks have to exhibit that behavior, which right. I, I think is is quite awesome when you look at it from, from a distance. How do you do that? So uh, for me, um, uh, my, my, my kind of connection or grounding is still trying to put myself through the eyes of the customer. Mm-hmm. So because I grew up in operations in retail, where I had to learn how to sweep the store, stock the store, manage a store, then become the regional and the sales director and eventually the big boss. Uh, I spent the first 10 years of, of my role here as CEO in Canada, still visiting uh, three days out of every week, visiting stores yeah. and going through 150 store visits every year to make sure I understood exactly what was going on with the front desk, the crew that had to run the stores but also listening to customers to hear what they have to say. So once you disconnect yourself from that, then you start to lose the real information of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really on the front lines. I remember one night you and I stayed back and there was two guests that just came up and were curious about the space and you like practiced all of that humility empathy, um, building connections, and you you spoke to them as if you were the front of house person. And I don't think they even knew that this is Mr. Yeah. David Ingram. Yeah, I, I'll tell you their names because I can remember, uh, I try to remember every name that I'm introduced to. So mm-hmm. uh, one is called Sharon, one is called Su Yin. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that I, at the end, gave them my business card to say, if you ever have any new ideas, because they had a, a ton of feedback and ideas. Some of it was about the change room, some of it was about the class. And uh, they were actually the inspiration for putting uh, a style design on their new boxing gloves. Mm. So funny enough, I've just sent them an email with a picture Good. where I had uh, a set of gloves made for each of them personalized with their names, Amazing. which I'm going to give to them uh, on Saturday. So wow. there is great things happen when you take the time and the effort and listen to your, to your clients and your guests. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great place to end off because... I could listen to you speak all day long, not just because of your accent, but because of the content that you've shared with but us. Great thought bombs and awesome takeaways. Like I love the the SPD. Like that's super cool. I like that. Also the social collisions. I mean, I've heard yeah. of that many times, but for you to mention that is is an epic 
um, golden nugget. But before we go, we have to know, because we always ask everybody, what food would you be? If you were a food, David, what food would you be? So what? <laughs> what? Like if you were a food or like a food item, you know, Julian said he would be an onion. I would be like a cola or like a spice. Oh, God. I know. All right, so let me... This is one of those crazy <laughs> HR questions when you're trying to be interviewed for no, a tech, tech No, no, this company. is not a crazy HR question. This All is right, just so a silly All right, so I'm going to do question. a quick answer then. I'm going to tell you I'm a snicker bar. Holy jeez, oh, that's oh, quick what? answer. so specific. <laughs> okay. I'm a snicker bar because I love chocolate, and chocolate is has some addictive quality. It does. Um, it's also crunchy, so it's got a hard interior. It's got some softness in the nugget around it. Um, it's got some sweetness. And I think it's a, uh, the most likely product that I find myself needing to consume if I'm ever in a place where I'm not sure what I should do next and I need a quick hit. Uh, either that or a pint of Guinness. So take your, <laughs> take your pick. I love it. Hey, David, that's amazing. Thanks so much for being on the show. We have to get you back because I feel like we have barely even like touched the surface. We did cover of, a lot of good stuff. We did. Um, but thanks because uh, we, we're all busy, but you're one of the busiest people that I know. So uh, for the Sweat and Tonic Show, I'm Dustin Pym. I'm Julian Ho. And? And I'm David Ingram. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, we'll be in, in tune with you guys soon. Take care. Mm-hmm.